Uh, This morning we are picking up where we left off in our sermon series through the book of Genesis. Uh, We are left off in chapter 12 where we met one of the most important figures in all of the Old Testament, indeed all of the Bible, Father Abram, who God called to leave his family and his home in the land of Ur. And God chose him to be three things, to be number one, the father of a great nation, Number two, the inheritor of the promised land of Canaan. And number three, a blessing to all peoples. And we noted that despite initially uh, following God in faith, almost immediately after that, in the very same chapter, Abram's faith failed when times got tough and a famine came. And so I stress that uh, just like Abram, the same is true of all of us. We are all in trouble if God's calling on our lives is utterly dependent on our faithfulness to him. Instead, we need a better Abram who remains faithful despite our faithlessness. And so this morning, we're going to see more of the same. God reaffirms two of those three promises to Abram here in chapter 15. Now keep in mind, God forms his covenant with Abram over really the course of three separate encounters. He first made these promises, like we said back in chapter 12. He's going to confirm them today in chapter 15, and then he'll reconfirm them again in chapter 17 in two weeks. Why? Because after every one of these exchanges, Abram messes up. Big time. He he sells his wife to Pharaoh in Egypt. He sleeps with his wife's maidservant, Hagar. He sells his wife out again to Abimelech. And so here in verse, uh, sorry, in chapter 15, even as God is repeating his covenant promises, Abram is doubting them. God promises, Abram doubts, but God in his patience and his loving faithfulness refuses to give up on Abram and instead offers him further proof of his promises by confirming his word to Abram. And then finally, the fourth kind of movement here, God promises, Abram doubts, uh, God reconfirms the promise, and then God calls Abram to respond to both of these promises. But more than anything this morning, what I want us to see again is how all of this points us to Jesus. Okay, remember Jesus was the greatest Old Testament interpreter who ever existed, and he has already uncovered the mystery for us, the secret message lying behind every passage of the Old Testament. Jesus said in Luke 24, 27, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, Jesus interpreted to his disciples In all the scriptures, the things concerning himself, Jesus claimed that all of scripture points to him. And so, if we don't see that this morning in God's covenant with Abram here, 2,000 years before Christ was even born, if we fail to see our need for and God's foreshadowing of the new and better covenant, the new and better covenant keeper to come, then we will miss the point of Genesis 15 entirely. So, with that said, Would you stand with me as you're able there at home out of respect for the reading of God's word? And we're going to be in Genesis chapter 15, verses 1 through 21. Hear the word of the Lord. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram. I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eleazar of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, 
You have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. Behold, the word of the Lord came to him and said, This man shall not be your heir, for your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, Look toward the heaven and number the stars. If you are able to number them, then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. And Abram believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. And he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. But Abram said, O Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? He said to him, Bring me a heifer three years old, a female goat three years old, a ram three years old, a turtle dove and a young pigeon. And he brought them all these, cut them in half, and laid them each half over against the other. But he did not cut the birds in half. And when the birds of prey came down on the carcasses, Abram drove them away. As the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram, and behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. Then the Lord said to Abram, know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years, but I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age, and they shall come back here in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking firepot and a flaming torch passed between the pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your offspring I give this land, from the river of Egypt to the great river Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Cadmonites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Rephaim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, and the Jebusites. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you once again this morning for your word. God, such a profound and profoundly important passage that we have before us this morning. Your covenant with Abram, your your calling in a new way, this, this chosen special people unto yourself. God, we thank you this morning that those of us who are in Christ now can call ourselves Abram's descendants your own adopted sons and daughters. God, we thank you for making us part of your family. God, if there is anyone watching, listening today who is not yet a part of your family, has not been adopted by faith into your spiritual heavenly family, God, we pray that this morning you might open ears, open eyes, open hearts to behold you for who you are, that you might call and choose, just like you did with Abram so many years ago, that you might call and choose someone into relationship with you this morning. How we would give you all the glory and honor and praise for that. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. All right, so first promise here. 
that God makes to Abram in verses 1 through 6 is the promise of offspring. That's the O in your bulletins if you're following along your digital bulletin online there, offspring. God actually uh, first promises Abram in verse 1 protection. He says, fear not, Abram, I am your shield. But then he also reiterates this promise of blessing. He says, your reward shall be very great. And so Abram takes it upon himself to clarify the meaning of this promised blessing. Verse 2, but God, what will you give me? For I continue childless. What, what blessing could you possibly give me if not a child? God, I know you've made me a wealthy man. That was a sermon uh, from chapters 13 and 14. God, but you can reward me with all the, the earthly riches you want, but if you don't give me a child, it will all be for naught. Because as it stands right now, when I die, and I'm an old man, Abram was 85 years old, all of my inheritance is going to go to Eleazar of Damascus anyway. This heir of my house, member of my household. Now, the meaning of the Hebrew is difficult to discern here, but Eleazar is likely either Abram's head servant of his household, or he was an adopted child. This was a common practice in the ancient Near East amongst uh, wealthy families. They would adopt in order to have someone in the family now to take care of them in their old age if they didn't have children of their own and, and to enjoy a sense of family with. And so it's possible that Abram here has already proven his doubt of God's promise of a biological child by adopting Eleazar. But regardless, what is significant to note here is that this is the very first time in the book of Genesis that Abram actually speaks to God. Up until this point, God has been doing all the speaking, and Abram has just been listening and obeying or failing to, but these are Abram's first words, and he uses them to question God, to doubt God's promise. God's already promised him a multitude of descendants three times now. Chapter 12, verse 2, chapter 12, verse 7, chapter 13, verse 14. God's good promise to Abram of a child is clear, but Abram's response at every turn is, yeah, God, but... And if we can just make this practical for a second, friends... Can't we all relate to that? God's promises on our lives are clear. Romans 8.28, I work all things together for your good. But what is our response? Yeah, God, but. Coronavirus? Yeah, God, but we just lost the house that we were under contract with. I just lost my job, my parent, my child, another miscarriage. My friends, these are all real losses that deserve real grief. And yet, we need to also remember 1 Thessalonians 4.13 that we do not grieve like those who have no hope because we really can trust in the promises of our good God. Proverbs Chapter 30, verse 5 says, God keeps every promise that he makes. Amen? But even when, like Abram, we doubt those promises, we have a God who remains faithful. And God proves that to Abram in verses 4 and 5. 
He says, Abram, go outside. I want you to look up and I want you to count the stars. Now, keep in mind, this is pre-light pollution. There's no haze in the Canaan night sky. Astronomers tell us there are roughly 5,000 stars visible to the naked human eye. And even though the earth blocks out half of them, that still leaves a few thousand stars. It's pretty tough to count. God uses this, this visual reminder to Abram. And he, God uses really big numbers all throughout the Bible simply to make the point that you shouldn't even bother trying to count. Right? It's like when Jesus says, forgive someone seven times, 70 times. The point isn't that 490 is the exact right number of times to forgive someone. But boy, if you mess up that 491st time, you're in trouble. At least I hope that is not the point. Right? Because God knows I have used up my 490 chances with my wife long time ago. No, the point is you, you, sh- you can't even keep count. And God makes that even more clear to Abram in chapter 22. Verse 17, he says, I will surely multiply your offspring as the sand that is on the seashore. God says, good luck counting all the grains of sand on the seashore. Actually, once again, I did find an estimate online this week, 7.5 times 10 to the 18th grains of sand. Scientist's best estimate, 7 quintillion, 500 quadrillion grains of sand on the earth. So just in case anyone's still counting, God really drives the point home in a way that can't even be approximated. Back in chapter 13, where, when he told Abram, I will make your offspring as the dust of the earth, so that if one can count the dust, then your offspring can be counted. Now, how you would even go about trying to count dust, I don't know. And God says, exactly. Right? Just give up. That's how many offspring I'm going to give you. Abram. God has promised. Abram has doubted. God has confirmed. But now comes the real question. How will Abram respond? Will he persist in his doubt? Or will he repent and trust in God's covenant? And verse 6 gives us the answer clearly. And Abram believed the Lord and he counted it to him as righteousness. Abram believed He didn't believe perfectly, right? His belief won't keep him from sleeping with Hagar. In the very next chapter, he will continue to have his moments of unbelief. Like the father of the demon-possessed boy in Mark chapter 9 who confesses to Jesus, I believe, Lord, help my unbelief. Praise God, friends, that our being saved by grace through faith, Ephesians 2, 8, does not require perfect faith from us, unwavering faith, as if faith itself was just another work that we have to muster up enough faith in order to save ourselves. In that case, none of us could ever be truly saved, even by faith, because we don't have enough of it. Right? Instead, the rest of that beautiful gospel verse assures us that we have been saved by grace through faith, and this is not of your doing. It is the gift of God. It's not just that God's grace, his unmerited favor, his provision of Jesus is a gift. Scripture says that even our faith in that grace, our trust and belief in Jesus is itself a gift. And we see this on display 
In the very first recorded profession of faith in Christ in history, Peter's confession in Matthew chapter 16, Jesus asked, who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father who is in heaven. Friends, Do you recognize that the only reason you believe in Jesus today is because God himself has called you to himself and opened your blind eyes so that you can see? Even your faith does not ultimately, truly come from you. It better not. Because if my salvation rests on my imperfect faith, I'm in trouble. And so are you. It is a gift from God, not by works, lest anyone should boast. And this faith, this given faith, we hear God counted or credited or reckoned or some translations even say imputed. The Hebrew verb it is hasab. They all mean the same thing. God looks at faith and he sees righteousness. Listen, we could spend all morning unpacking just this one verse, but but here's the synopsis. Psalm 37 assures us that transgressors shall not, uh, transgressors shall be, sorry, altogether destroyed, but the salvation of the righteous is from the Lord. Now, that is bad news for you and me and for every other human who's ever lived because Romans 3 verse 10 warns us that none is righteous, no, not one. We are all transgressors waiting to be altogether destroyed unless God chooses to look at faith and instead see the righteousness of Christ imputed, counted, credited, reckoned to us as our own righteousness. I want to say even more about this verse, but we got to keep moving. God's second promise is land. In in verses 7 and following, God promises land. That's the L in your bulletin. Verse 7, God said to Abram, I am the Lord who brought you out from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. This is a major theme all throughout the Bible. We could tell the whole story of Scripture through the the, the lens, the motif of land. Genesis 1, God created land. Genesis 2, he, he made this special land, a garden for his most special creation, us humans, and he told us to fill the land and and to care for it. But instead, Genesis 3, we violated God's only no trespassing sign, the one piece of land off limits, the tree of knowledge. And subsequently, we were evicted from the land. So God flooded the land. Noah waited for the land to reappear. Now God is covenanting to Abram a promised land, a new special land for his new special people. But God is going to warn them, once again in Psalm 37, to turn away from evil and do good. He says, for the righteous shall inherit the land and dwell upon it forever. And God reiterates that promise, that warning to his people, especially through the prophets and their warnings like Amos's, who we read just last week, let justice flow down 
like waters and righteousness, like an ever-flowing stream, says the Lord, or else I will send you into exile. You'll be kicked out of the land. And that's exactly what happens to them. And for centuries, God's people anticipated a coming ruler like King David who would take back their land for them from Assyria, from Babylon, from Greece, from Rome. And they tried to crown Jesus king. But he said, my kingdom is not of this world. Jesus said, I've got a better piece of real estate in mind waiting for you to offer you. In my father's house, there are many rooms. But two of the three Abrahamic religions missed the memo and were willing to settle for so much less than what Jesus came to offer them. The Jews and the Muslims have been fighting over the same piece of land ever since. But we Christians know that our hope, our home, is not in this world. Philippians 3 says our citizenship is in heaven and we await a better land, a new Jerusalem, a heavenly city where there will be no more death, no more tears, no more pain. All things will be made new in that land on that day. Amen? That is the Bible in a nutshell for you. Land is really important in the Bible. But how does Abram respond here to God's promise of this holy land? Verse 8, Abram said, O Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? Abram doubts again. Once again, he doubts. His response is reminiscent here of Moses's when Moses was called to go back to the land of Egypt to set God's people free, and Moses responded, yeah, God, but how will they know that it's you who sent me? And God said, I'm going to work miracles. Moses says, yeah, God, but I don't talk so good. And God says, I'll talk for you. And Moses says, yeah, God, but I don't want to go. And God says, oh, there it is. Yeah, there it is. Once again, friends, I just, I can't help but wonder how many of us this morning are saying to the promises of God, yeah, God, but. And not just the promises we like. Moses didn't want to go back to Egypt. I'm not so sure Abram wanted to leave the comforts of Ur for this foreign land. And oh, by the way, he wasn't even ever going to possess it. His hypothetical offspring would be the ones to one day eventually possess it. So too for us, if we struggle with God's promises that we like to work all things together for our good, how much more so God's promise that in this world you will have trouble. John 16, 33. God's promise, Jesus' promise that if the world hated me, it will hate you also. Anyone else want to respond to that one with, yeah, God, but... Like, Jesus, I, I want to follow you, but I also want to be liked. Jesus, I, I want to follow you, but I also want to be comfortable. I mean, if God really wanted everyone to follow him, he would be so much better off promise, promising us health and wealth and happiness in this life because we are such short-term, instantaneous gratification creatures, aren't we? God has promised us all the riches of eternal life with him in paradise forever, but we would settle for a little cash. 
for a, a nicer house, for a bigger plot of land. God promises Abram land here. And Abram's response is essentially, yeah, God, but how do I know you'll give it to me? Can I like get some earnest money up front? Can I at least see the land first? I want to make sure it's actually better than the land I'm giving up back in Ur. Abram doubts God. But once again, God in his mercy confirms this second promise. In verse 9, he tells Abram, bring me a cow, a goat, a ram, a dove, and a young pigeon. Cut them in half and lay each half over against the other. What's going on here? What in the world? Kent Hughes explains for us this custom was common in Abram's Mesopotamian homeland. When two parties blessed a promise or covenant, they would kill a donkey, divide it in two, and arrange the halves so that the, the covenanting parties could walk between the sundered body of the animal. The ceremony dramatized a self-imposed curse should either of the covenanting parties break the pledge. The sense was, if I break my word, may I become like this severed animal. Now, kids... Let me talk to y'all for a minute because every Sunday is family Sunday these days at West Hills and I love it and nothing is more kid friendly than cutting cows and goats in half and walking through their entrails, all right? So kids, here's the deal. How many of y'all have ever made a promise with someone, right? Now, if it's a serious promise, what do you do to make sure that both parties understand just how serious this promise is? You might make it a pinky promise, right? Because nothing says, I mean business, like the human pinky. Now, some of y'all might instead cross your heart. Right? I don't know if kids still say, cross my heart, hope to die, stick a needle in my eye, if you know that one. Now we're getting a little more violent, right? If I break this promise, stick a needle in my eye. Now, if you think that sounds bad, kids, just imagine saying to God, if I break this promise, God, cut me in half like this dead animal. I mentioned back in my sermon on divorce when we preached through the Gospel of Mark in the fall I wonder if we'd have a lot fewer divorces these days if we raised the stakes of the covenant again. So I'm officiating Allie Smith and Ryan Gibson's wedding this coming fall, and I just want them to know, and anyone else I marry, God willing, at the church in the years to come, uh, that that offer is on the table. If y'all want me to cut an animal in half at your wedding to dramatically symbolize how seriously you guys take this marriage, I'm game if you are. I just want you to know that offer's on the table. And in all seriousness, God doesn't just confirm his promise symbolically. He also reiterates the covenant in word Two, Verse 13, the Lord said to Abram, know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there. They will be afflicted for 400 years. God prophesies uh, Israel's enslavement in Egypt that won't occur for another 200 some odd years when they will lose their promised land. But then verse 16, he promises they will return to the land after four centuries, four generations, the lifespan of that day. Uh, and, and don't miss 
this massively important explanation that God slips in there for why they will be enslaved for 400 years. Verse 16, he says, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. Now, in other words, when you and I read our Bibles, we come to Deuteronomy, Joshua, and Judges, and we agonize over how a loving God could command the utter annihilation of the Canaanites and the Amorites. Just keep in mind that the Israelites had a much different take on this. Right? The, the theological problem they had that they wrestled with wasn't God's judgment of these wicked, idolatrous, pagan nations. That made sense to them, right? I mean, if God is really a God of justice, it makes sense that he would punish people who sacrifice their own children to false demon gods. That makes sense. No, the Israelites' question was how could God be so patient with these people? How could God let his own people, the Israelites, be enslaved for 400 years while he continually tried to reach out to these godless nations to give them a chance after chance after chance to repent? And it's because, Exodus chapter 34, the Lord is a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. But, but, know this, you Canaanites, you Amorites, you 21st century secular Americans who have forsaken God, but he is also a God who will by no means clear the guilty. He is a God of justice. And so the Apostle Paul warns us in Romans 2, don't presume on the riches of God's patience. It is meant to lead you to repentance, but mark it down. God's patience will run out one day for everyone who does not repent and turn to him in faith. Like the Israelites, we too could look around at our own society today in an age where in a single week, a major U.S. city votes to get rid of the entire police force. A section of another major U.S. city secedes from the United States, creates its own anarchist state, where the Supreme Court paves the way for the criminalization of all gender distinctions. We could look around in that kind of society and say, how long, oh Lord, will you be patient but Donald Gray Barnhouse reminds us that if the iniquity of our nation had been full a hundred years ago, none of us would have ever been born. And so we bless God for his patience. But we keep in mind, it will run out. God promised Abram, the land, Abram doubts, God confirms the promise, and then he calls Abram to respond. And here's where things get really interesting in this story. And I, I promise we are almost done, but don't miss this. We need to note this one little detail that the text slipped in there in verse 12 that we skipped over a moment ago. As the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell 
over Abram. So Abram is actually unconscious while God is prophesying all this in verses 13 through 16. And then while he is still asleep, watch what God does in verse 17. It says, when the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between the pieces. Now, what's going on here? I thought the ancient Near Eastern custom was when you cut a covenant, both parties walk through the animal's blood path, but who passes through the pieces here? It's a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch. Kent Hughes once again explains, this is a theophany, a visual manifestation of God. God shows up to Moses in the burning bush, fire, Exodus 3.2. Israel would see And again at Mount Sinai, the Lord descended on the mountain in fire. The smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln, we hear, Exodus 19, 18. Exodus, uh, sorry, Israel saw it again in the pillar of cloud by day and the cloud of fire by night, Exodus 13, verse 21. So this smoking fire pot and this flaming torch here both symbolize God's unapproachable holiness. God is making a covenant with himself. Here's the point. Abram sleeps through the whole thing. Why? Because if the covenant depends on Abram's faithfulness, he is in big, big trouble. I already spoiled the rest of Abram's story for you. He messes up after all three of God's confirmations of the covenant. Talk about patience. God gives Abram three chances to get it right, but eventually God just makes it clear here that my covenant promise does not depend on your faithfulness, Abram. I am the only party walking through the blood path here. And friends, I'm not going to take us through, walk us through every passage of Scripture that I've listed for you there in the bottom of your bulletin. I strongly encourage you to go And do that on your own. But here's the long and short of it. God is offering you and I another covenant this morning, friends. It's better than offspring. His promise is better than land. He is offering us Christ, his own son, Jesus. That's the C in your bulletin, Christ. He is the promised one whom the prophets foretold, Jeremiah 31, they shall all know me, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity. I will remember their sin no more. God promised Christ a thousand years before, but like Abram, we doubted the promise. And we didn't just doubt, we rejected him. Matthew 21, the stone that the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. Isaiah 53, he was despised and rejected by men, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities in our sin. We hated Jesus so much we nailed him to a cross. And yet God in his redemptive mercy, God took even that, even the greatest evil in all of human history and flipped it on its head and used it as the very means by which he would accomplish the salvation of all who would trust in Christ for eternal life. And then Jesus' resurrection was the confirmation of that promise that God made and we rejected. The receipt 
that proved that the check that Christ wrote to pay the penalty for our sins had cleared. The proof that the same power that rose Jesus from the dead, Romans 8, 11, now lives in you and me and has raised us to new life, eternal life in him as well. Friends, this is the new covenant, the better covenant forged for us by a better covenant keeper that while you were yet a sinner, while you were dead in your sin, asleep as it were, unconscious, unable to please God and keep the covenant, Jesus Christ walked through the blood path to confirm the promise that you and I could never live up to. And friends, he didn't just walk through it, he created it. It was his blood. He was the lamb that was led to slaughter for your sake. He is your atoning sacrifice who paid the debt that we owed God but in our sin could never hope to repay. But here's the thing. As much as this new covenant, like Abram's, is unilateral, one-directional, God's promise to you and me of salvation in Christ does not rest on our faithfulness to Jesus, but rather on his faithfulness to us. At the same time, do not miss this, God really does call us. He requires us to respond. To respond. Abram believed. And as imperfect as his faith might have been, as flawed as his faith was, God counted it to him as righteousness. By grace, you too can be saved through your own imperfect faith. The promises of a covenant must either be received or rejected. And so I ask you this morning, will you receive the promise 